This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome back to Science with Dr. Carl. This week we got into some big life lessons, like if you're putting on a load of washing, is it unhygienic to put your tea towels and your socks in the same load? What should you put your coffee in to keep it hotter for longer? And is there a link between baldness and having a baby girl? I'm Lucy Smith. Let's get into it. I actually have a question to start you off, which I know you're Mm going to get into. So recently my housemate made the very conscious decision to take his washing to his girlfriend's parents' house because they have a hills hoist and he just wanted to wash all of his bedding in the beautiful sunshine and let it get that sweet air because it smells different to when you hang it out on a beautiful sunny day to when you put it in the dryer. Even one of my friends said you can smell the sun in your sheets. Can Is there a science behind that? Yes. Um, the CSIRO have been looking at this and it turns out there's a whole bunch of chemicals in the world around you. You know, you, 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 wherever you go, you are going to touch chemicals. Fresh air contains chemicals and with your clothing, you've got the ideal surface. What you've got is lots of fine fibres, huge amount of surface area and all sorts of energy coming from the sun. About 50% heat, about 45% visible light and a couple of percent ultraviolet. And that's enough combined with these innocuous chemicals that are just floating around to do what they call oxidative surface photochemistry and produce a bunch of chemicals ranging in length from the carbon atoms. So either you have five carbon atoms in a row with various things hanging off or six or seven or eight or nine and these are the chemicals that smell really nice. Mm. And so the CSIRO has actually gone down a pathway and analysed them, thus proving that it is better to wash your clothes online because they smell so good. That's one thing. The other thing is that if you turn all the clothes inside out, they don't fade and the ultraviolet sterilises everything including the undies, which I also like for free. Um, But on the other hand, I think I've mentioned this before, in the United States, having a clothesline is being a poor person. Really? So, yeah, you you watch. In the tracking shot of the movie, it's a windy day and it's a bit sort of cloudy and then it comes past the front yard where the doors hang off the hinges and there's clothes and lying in the ground and, and broken kids' toys and long grass and it tracks around the back of the house and there you see, wait for it, some clothes hanging on the clothesline, <laughs> proving that you're dealing with some sort of riffraff. And in fact, in the United States, 14% of all of their electrical energy is used to dry clothes. Oh, my Which goodness. by coincidence... Yeah, which is roughly equal to what their nuclear power stations put out. And the advantage of not drying them in the dryer, well, the dryer, you know that lint you get? Mate, that's your clothes. Like when you put your clothes into a washing machine worth a thousand bucks, the value of the clothes is much more than the washing machine. So get a good washing machine, a front loader, and then go for the line if you can. And I actually read an article in the New York Times a couple of months ago explaining to people that you can dry your clothes with sunlight and you can do it by hanging a string across and you get these things called clothes clips. You can even do it inside an apartment where you let the sun land on your clothes. And mate, you go through Europe and you just see people's clothes in the cities just hanging out on their verandas it's out the front beautiful. in the city, whereas um, some people think that that's low rent and very poor. I, oh. I'm proudly got my towels drying on the front veranda right now. Absolutely. Sarah in Prospect, you actually have a question while we're on the washing piece. What do you want to ask Carl? Yeah, hi, doctors. 
I'm just wondering, I'm a big separator of laundry in terms of I wouldn't wash dirty gym socks with a tea towel because that seems gross, but mm. is it actually necessary? I feel the same way, Sarah, sometimes with my underwear. Like I wouldn't put my underwear maybe with my nice clothes, yeah. you know, or yeah, you're right, wouldn't wash underwear with a tea towel. Dr. Carl, separating your washing as far as the germs that are on them. I, I did a story on this years ago, one of my books called Bathroom Blues, uh, bathroom blues about women uh, not being properly accommodated in terms of bathroom facilitators, facilities that they have, and are tied on into the question of your stained, delicate word there, clothing. Now, the advantage of wearing undies is that if you happen to do an F-A-R-T, that rude word, <laughs> in addition to the sterile gas coming out, there's also maybe some fecal poo particles. And if you put stained undies in the wash, you can pick up some fecal remnants after they've been through the wash. Mm. So you should specifically wash those fecally particles by hand with soap in the sink and then put them in. So with, with gym socks, you're going to be getting a bit of sweat but I think the sweat is pretty water-soluble and will go. With tea towels, you're probably going to pick up water-soluble things, but also the fat. And so it's probably mm. worthwhile doing a pre-soak. I, 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 I'm very happy to be talking about washing clothes. Yeah. Thank you very much, Sarah and Lucy. <laughs> I know. Okay, so we've got this tea towels, pre-soak, chuck them in. And then with intimates, maybe you want to do a little hand wash and then chuck them in. Maybe. Depending okay. on... Depending. It's the science of washing. I think that's your next book, Dr. Carl. I love it. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. Thank, Thank you, Dr. You. Sarah. Sarah kicking us off there. We've got Becky here from Tacoma. Becky, what do you want to ask Carl? Hi, doctors. My question is, if we do abdominal breathing while we're going off to sleep to ease um, anxiety, does the body continue that? And if it doesn't, why not? Um. I don't know, but let me take a bit of a guess. So there's two sorts of breathing you can do. Just imagine that you're lying on your back and you're calm and relaxed. And so if you just do the so-called abdominal breathing, as your tummy bulges up towards the ceiling, well, it's pulling the bottom of the lungs downward and making them bigger. Mm. And so air comes in through your mouth. And so that's the most efficient form of breathing but if you really need to get all the air in you can, you can then do rib cage breathing mm. where you actually lift your whole rib cage from up high near the collarbones and you will get a bit of extra air in, but it's harder work. It's not as efficient, um, but it will get you that extra air that you need for a race or something. Or if you've been accidentally put into what they call the hypervigilant state, by having some sort of threat. You know, you see a red-bellied mm. black snake on the ground instead of the beautiful flannel flowers, and then you just go into the emergency mode. I am guessing that your body should put you into the abdominal breathing, but you've raised a really good question there because maybe, Beck, part of the problem that mm. anxious people have with waking up tired is that they've actually mm. been doing uh, rib cage breathing rather than abdominal breathing. And I don't know, and I need to read up on this, and you've increased my homework, and thank you very much. Oh, that's a good point, that's actually, yeah. No problem. Yeah. I just yeah. Find that, yeah, I've been thinking about it for a little while, and I thought, hmm, I've got to put this to the doctors. Mm, because it's almost yeah. as if I find when I, if I want to do any kind of meditation or mindfulness, you'll breathe yes. from the diaphragm, but yes. you're probably not doing that in your sleep because it takes a bit of effort. 
That's well, right. And that's where I learned it initially was doing yoga and so forth. And it was encouraged because it relaxes the body and eases tension. But um, yeah, I just wondered whether the body actually continued that because it seems to be a a healthy, a good thing for the body to yeah, relax. Yeah. Luckily, I've got a relative who's a gas person and, and anesthesiologist, so I'll ask them because they know that kind of stuff. Becky's onto something. We've got Mark here from Albury. Mark, got a question about electricity? Yes, yes. Dr. Mark. Hi. Welcome. Hi, doctors. Lovely to be here. Um, would it be possible, my question is, to transfer electricity through a Bluetooth-type system? as opposed to, I mean, nowadays everybody, a lot of blokes use cordless power tools. Most mm-hmm. of my power tools are corded. Would it be able to transfer electricity to um, a power tool that didn't have a battery? Yes. I've actually done a podcast on this with Professor Geraint Lewis and it blew my mind. Okay. And wow. so think about a power cable uh, extension cord and is running to a, a device using 10 watts. Yeah, sorry, 10 amps, say an angle grinder. And yep. the wire gets hot, okay? And he said the energy does not go through the wire. It goes through the air. Listen to the podcast on drcarl.com, loads of science, to understand that. And I'm still trying to understand it, but it goes like this. You can transfer energy through the air. Now, you see it all the time with your cordless toothbrush. So it sits on a little prong. And if you have two coils of wire, a bigger one and a little one that sits inside it, if you put electricity into the smaller one, it will transfer through the air uh, to the bigger coil. And because they're so close and they're coils, and various physics, you get a very high efficiency transfer. But if it's further away, then it's less efficient. So yeah. we have been working at sending electricity through the air and managing to sort of beam focus it. We're not very good at it now. Um, so what you're thinking is trying to send the electricity to charge up your power tool through the air. Um, we're working on it. Part of the push for it, surprisingly and we don't know too much about this area, surprisingly, is coming from electric cars. Oh. And so in Sweden, yeah. they are building the first road to run all the way to Germany where an electric car can charge through the air <gasps> from stuff buried under the, ro- under the surface of the road. Oh, my God. Now you, you, yeah. yeah, you're probably going to have to line yourself up. They might paint a line on the road and then the camera in your car will sort of line you up exactly and then yep. maybe something will lower down to maybe four centimetres above the road or, or, or as close as you can get. But we are heading down that pathway and discovering a lot. You've, you've raised a really good is- issue there. That's Bless great. you. That's brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. And um, through the radio system, I would just like to send some love to all your listeners and to you both. Oh, Mark. oh I love Joel, love. And we love your accent as well. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank Thanks, you. Mark. Dr. Carl, out of interest, what's your hangover cure? Uh, I learned this in medical school. Tincture, which is a fancy word meaning medicine. Tincture of time. Ah, now unfortunately, an, a cure-ish is just a bit of alcohol, which is a bad pathway to go down. Little because hair what of the happens? Dog. Yeah, the hair of the dog. Because what happens in many cases, the, the um, hangover can be caused by your body metabolizing the methanol into bad chemicals. There's a tiny amount of methanol in the alcohol, uh, not much, just a tiny amount, and you can stop it from doing that, 
and let the methanol go out through the kidneys by having the hair of the dog and forcing it to metabolise the ethanol, which your liver does preferentially before it does the methanol, which is poisonous and can make you go blind, but there's only tiny amounts of it. Um, Basically, now, okay, confession time. I have been drunk in my life to the stage of vomiting twice in my life. What? Only twice? And the first time I thought I'll never do this again and the second time I thought, okay, I'll never do this again. And so I never did. Um, and with regard to getting sunburnt, I got burnt three times when I was a kid. And after the third time, I learned that you go to the beach and what you do is you put a towel over all of your body. And that way you get the warmth without the sunburn. That's oh, my God. True. I'll have to sell this to somebody. Okay, so either way, time and maybe a little hair of the dog is your cure. No, the hair of the dog, because in some people... They get so much better that they go down a pathway of becoming alcoholics. Mm. Uh, but in yeah, I'm sorry. Look, don't drink too much. But yeah, some people a little bit of alcohol can be good. You know, a little bit. Yeah. Okay, little bit, little yeah. bit, little bit in moderation. We got yeah. Nicole here from Launceston. Nicole, Nicole, from what's your question? Hi. Um, yeah. So I've got a group of about thirteen really close girlfriends. Um, thirteen. Now, yeah, pretty big group of girlfriends. Good on you, Nicole. Um, there's a, we're all in about our 30s and they're all, we're all at that stage of having babies, um, even second babies. And out of that, um, that group, there's about 13 that are boys and only three that are girls. And I was just wondering why that might be. Why are there so many boys uh, in our age group of um, friends? I can give you a bit of an answer, but and this is proof that I have to do more homework because my answer is about eight years old. So firstly, uh, with regard to the sky, they should call it the wild pink yonder, not the wild blue yonder, because fighter pilots tend to have girl children. Oh, now, yeah. The, yeah, so the sperm that makes boys are smaller and more fragile than the sperm that makes girls. And so they tend to get knocked off. So fighter pilots, not commercial pilots necessarily, but fighter pilots tend to have girls. Secondly, there is an association, but a moderately weak one, between high testosterone level and early baldness. Um, and they tend to have girl children as well. And on one occasion I was invited to a Chinese dinner and I was seated next to the guest of honour and we started chatting away and um, I said, hello, how are you, blah, 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 how's your family? He says, oh, good, I've got a big family. I said, how many do you have? He said, um, 18. And I wow. said, how many are girls? And I was looking at him and I could see that he was bald and he was young. And out of those 18, 17 were girls. <gasps> so there, there, there is a weak association. Since the knowledge I picked up eight, ten years ago, the field has moved on an awful lot. And this is my second bit of homework after do you do abdominal breathing during sleep. So, Dr Nicole, I will read up on this for next week and, see if I, or, and ask my friends in the uh, endocrinology business to see if we have a better answer. Nicole, of your 13 friends, how many of them have potentially bald or balding partners? Ah. <laughs> uh, None at the moment, but there's, um, yeah, worry for them later on. <laughs> That's it. Well, if, you know, you did say majority boys, full heads of hair, that could be yeah. it. So yeah, you're going to have to start doing your own research, Nicole, just kind of tracking <laughs> your friends from here on I'm out. I'm going to have to. <laughs> and you've given, I think so. Thank you. Mm, you've given Dr. Carl homework as well. we got Andy here from Gladesville. Oh, we love a coffee question. Andy, what have you got? Hi. <laughs> Hey, doctors, um, quick question about coffee. It is uh, super important to me because I've got three kids, so uh, early morning coffees uh, definitely get me going. 
But uh, since the kids arrived, I've found that the coffee gets colder and colder as the, as the morning goes and as, as the kids get ready. So what's um, got me wondering, like, what's the optimal, um, you know, top of cup that I can use to keep it warm? You know, but I, I don't like those, you know, those double-walled vacuum steel things. Like if it was going to be like a traditional coffee cup, you know, what would it be? Ah, mm. uh, look, I'm, I'm with you entirely. So firstly, um, the thing to realise about coffee is that it is not a stimulant. Methamphetamines, mm-hmm. amphetamines are a stimulant. Thyroid hormone is a stimulant. But rather, caffeine is a blocker of a depressant. And the mm. depressant that gets manufactured in your body as the day goes on is adenosine. So when you wake up, you've got virtually no adenosine floating. And if a cup of coffee works on you, hallelujah for the placebo effect. Right? It's all placebo. And, hey, I, I, I love a good cheap placebo, especially if it's cheap and it works well. So caffeine normally works best from two hours on. But if it works for you at the beginning of the day, mate, you've conditioned yourself into it, that's fine. Two, I share your anguished and conflicted emotions. On one hand, I do love the concept of a stainless steel coffee cup with a vacuum in between. But the trouble is that... It's not the same as ceramic and yeah. the stainless transfers the heat through the metal. There's not a barrier. What we want is a ceramic cup which has around it some sort of insulator like they have either on the old space shuttle tiles or on the amazing Parker probe going towards the sun. Now it's getting in close to the sun and it's got this shield and the shield is about 15 centimetres thick and on one side the temperature is over a thousand degrees centigrade and on the other side it's 30. We want some of that material and so we should start up a marketing and this is how you're going to get fabulously wealthy. You are going to manufacture this and all that Lucy and I ask from you is that further down the line when you're a, a squillionaire, you give us a cup of coffee one day, your shout with a slice of cake. So you want <laughs> the ceramic on the inside and then you want the insulating material around it and then you want it to you want you want the perfect combination of art and function. But it has to maybe be we should send you the prototype of the car. That's it. But let's say tomorrow morning Andy wakes up, what would be the the best vessel to put his coffee in to keep it warmer for longer? Well, <sighs> <laughs> Mate, just get some spray foam that hardens or just some foam that d- oh, doesn't harden do that. and then, then put that around the coffee cup. It looks ugly, right? What you want is beauty. You want, well, you want the to lip be to be ceramic still. You still want the lip to be... Yeah, you, know, the lip and you want it to be, to be slim. There's yeah. a bit of clever design here, but uh, the world is crying out for it. Andy, like, Todd, would you, would you Todd want, yeah, texting him yeah, with go. a good point, have you ever done the thing where you warm the cup first with boiling water? I, I haven't, but I've, I've taken to using a coaster now because I've noticed, like, putting it straight on the stone bench top, it'll leach out the heat. Oh, somehow. true, so, true. So try try this, done... though, Andy. Genuinely, yeah. I do this with cups of tea sometimes. You just fill it with boiling water, let it chill for a tick, and then pour the water out and then make your coffee in that. Perhaps I will. Yeah. Perhaps I will. Thank Carl, you. did you Thanks have something to add? Yeah, either put a insulating material over the top, which looks uh-huh. ugly, and then take it off. Leave it there in between, then take it off so then you can drink the coffee or have it built in so you've got a little sort of spout. But then that is sort of like a kid drinking from a kid's bottle when you're three years old so you don't spill all over yourself. We need something. There is a crying need, Andy, for this. Go thou and, in, and invent and become a squillionaire and onwards. We're ready. We've got Nick from Stanthorpe. Nick, you would have been in the midst of a big old storm. What, what happened? What did you notice? Yeah, g'day. How you going? Good. Dr. Nick, welcome. Hey, yeah, so um, yesterday afternoon, you know, a big storm was coming through and uh, 
yeah, I looked up and there's a big-ass wedge-tailed eagle in the sky and I wow. thought, man, what's he doing up there? And um, then a bit closer and there's a there's an aeroplane next to him and I thought, if the aeroplane got struck by lightning, would it have the same effect as it would do on the wedge-tailed eagle and would the wedgie get killed? Very interesting question. Okay, uh, here's a story from Turin in Italy where a bunch of maybe nine, ten people were playing on a golf course and out of nowhere came a mighty storm. So wet, yay, that they were bent, they were wet even into their armpits and their groin. They were fully covered with water, which saved them. They were fully wet even into their armpits and their socks and their groin and then they got hit by a bolt of lightning, the whole bunch of them. And the lightning ran through the layer of water on their skin. And because they were very wet, there were no breaks of it going into the skin, ran through the water on the skin, through their shoes and into the ground. But there was so much energy going through the thin layer of water that the water got heated up, turned into steam, expanded by 1,700 times and blew off all their clothes. And so naked, with many bruises, they went to the clubhouse and said, guess what happened to us? Anyway, so that's, that's one, one true story. Secondly, with an aeroplane, you have a metal skin. And for a long time, I really thought that you'd have something like a Faraday cage thing happening and the electricity would come in and go out the other end. And then I'm reading now a five-part series in Aviation Week and Space Technology, otherwise known as Megadeth Weekly, because every week they talk about new and unusual ways to kill a million people that weren't thought of last week. And they're doing a five-part series on what happens to an aeroplane when electricity goes through it. And superficially, all you see is a little hole here and maybe a little hole there, a little tiny thing, but inside, all sorts of things can go wrong. And they talk about this. And luckily, aeroplanes have got so many multiple redundancies that it does not end up with a plane falling out of the sky. If a plane falls out of the sky, almost always it's firstly very rare and then secondly, operator or some sort of software error, error as in the Boeing 737 Maxes or the 10s or whatever they were. So the plane will survive. Now, with regard to the Eagle, well... I'm kind of thinking maybe something, I'm guessing here, I'm guessing maybe something like our golfers in Turin where if it's wet enough, it'll go through the water and, and, and away. But feathers are really good at rejecting water. You drop water onto a feather, it doesn't wet it and, and spread out. It sits there like a little bubble. So it might actually penetrate their bodies and hurt them. I wouldn't want to do the experiment. And then, then finally to finish off, what happens when lightning hits the ocean? The, all we have is some reports, a whole bunch of newspaper reports from the tropics where most lightning bolts happen. And basically the fisher folks see that a bolt of lightning's gone and hit the ocean. They sail over there, you know, a kilometre away, and there's a circle of dead fish maybe five, ten metres in diameter. That's what we got. So we haven't actually done the experiment, but, gee, Nick, you've raised a can of worms there. Very yeah, no, it was pretty interesting to see him up there in the, um, in the sky. He was actually flying into the storm, which I thought was just mental for yeah. starters, eh? Oh, we've got to explain for our overseas listeners what is a wedgie because we Australians unfortunately have the happy habit of getting a long word and getting rid of everything except the first <laughs> syllable and adding on a vowel. So can you tell us what for our overseas li listeners, a wedgie is not pulling up one's underpants really high? No, nah, it's, uh, it's a really big eagle. Um, yeah, it's, it's a monster. Yeah, it's a wedge-tailed <laughs> eagle. The wedge-tailed eagle. Okay, so... <laughs> a monster of the sky. I, I was, love that. I was that. thinking of flying underpants in the sky. Okay, let's just get rid of that image. <laughs> We've got more people texting in about how to keep your coffee hotter for longer. Ah. A few people texting this in Phil saying, put your ceramic coffee cup in a stubby holder. 
I, the mechanics yeah, yeah, of that would be just be difficult. But yeah, they, they've kind of they've got a bit of give, but it's just not elegant. I want That's beauty. It. I want beauty as well at the same time as function. Someone else you can buy double wall ceramic cups that work very well, and the tea and coffee tastes great. What, Carl? You like this? Jasmine from Tassie suggesting make the coffee as you would a tea and put it in the teapot and keep it what? hotter for longer. Yeah, I'm trying to. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I've got a little um, Italian coffee maker um, where it sort of goes around in a half circle and then under pressure the steam is forced through the basket and mm. it drills into a cup and basically the first five mils taste better than the second five mils which tastes better than the third five mils and so I have myself little bits of coffee along the way. The last one, if it's beginning to be get a bit off, I stop having it anymore. <gasps> Maybe Jasmine is suggesting you make the coffee, you put it in the teapot and then you just gradually pour it out. Oh, that would be a... Yes. Good um, I, I can see where you're coming from, Jasmine. I, I, I can see <laughs> and I appreciate your wisdom. Julie, are you laughing? Can I hear you laughing in the background there? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Actually, now you're talking about laughing. Lucy, you have the best laugh. Oh it God. always <laughs> makes me smile. It is just adorable. Oh so God. don't ever leave and don't ever stop laughing. Julie, thank you so much. You're too sweet. Look, while I've got you up here, we aren't talking about coffee. You've got a question about nails. What's happening? Yes. What is the function of toenails and fingernails? What's the point of them? Mm. Uh, well, the first thing is that in evolution, nothing has to have any function. It can be just left over as an accident. So long as mm -hmm. you can have babies, it doesn't matter. So evolution doesn't have to be perfect, just good enough. However, I can think of at least one function of fingernails, which is that they make the sensation appearing on the pulp of your finger far more sensitive. If you had just a, a soft blobby fingertip and if you sort of were running your finger across a surface, you'd feel something. You'd get some information. But mm -hmm. if you've got a hard top, then that does something with funneling and reflecting the pressure waves and suddenly you feel things with a great sensitivity. So the first thing about the fingernails mm. is that they make, they improve the sensitivity of your fingertips when you run the pulp of your finger across a flat surface. The th second good thing about them is that if you've got a really loose um, ordinary screw, you can put your fingernail in it and undo it, but that hardly <laughs> ever happens. Uh, they're normally pretty tight. The third thing is that if you are curious about when you're doing a little bit of repair work and are things lined up, you can then run your fingernail across what you, looks like a flat surface and with your fingernail you can feel down to just a few microns, a few millionths of a metre. You can just feel, you can run your, the pulp of your finger across the surface and it feels flat. But run your fingernail and then suddenly uh -huh. there's a sudden jump, right? Now, I don't know if evolution had this in mind when we uh, started evolving from the, splitting off from the chimpanzees about seven million years ago. Um, you got any ideas for fingernails? Oh, of course, you can put bright colours on them. Well, How can I forget? <laughs> that's what I was going to ask, Julie. Coming out of lockdown, are you going to go and get a mani-pedi or what? <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, thanks. I'm, I'm sure evolution had screws in mind as well. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm Lucy. Dr Carl joins you to answer all of your science queries. And we've got Agatha here from Rose Hill. Agatha, got a question about cats. Uh, yeah, hey, doctors. Um, so I was watching my cat lick his butthole the other day, <laughs> as you do, um, and I was wondering why they can do that without getting sick because, like, obviously if we had a bit of our own poop, we'd get sick. But <laughs> then you, like, change their kibble brand and then they get an upset tummy. 
Whoops. Hang so there's two questions in one. Well, sort of. It's kind of okay. why can it how come a cat can lick its butthole and not get you know, not get sick, but then you change its its kibble or its litter to oh wait, oh, wait, wait, kibble. No, that's, food, the, that's the food. The food, yeah, yeah. So yeah. You change ah. their brand. You change, if you change that. that too quickly, then they get sick. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, first part. Um, the cats have got a very short gut. Between your mouth and the back end, the bum as we call it in Australia, you've got about 10 metres. And so a lot of stuff goes on in there and there are bacteria in there and prebiotics and probiotics and you can have bacteria that are poisonous to you in that, that evolve over that great length. The cat has a much shorter gut. Now, I need a small animal vet to help me out on this, but my strong suspicion is that they don't get so many nasty or pathogenic, fancy name for nasty, bacteria that can kill them. So they can, I think because they're very gymnastic and they've got a very short gut, for whatever reason, they can lick their bums without it being bad for their health. Now, the other thing about these animals, the cats and the dogs, is that they will sniff each other's bummel area. I've just made up a new adjective, bum, uh, bummel, the bummel area, <laughs> to sort of learn about the other cat. So like you and I, we shake hands and there's that whole firm shake, not too firm, looking at each other in the eye, all that sort of, you know, sizing each other up. And cats and dogs do it by smelling the state of health and the evolutionary fitness of the other cat and, and whether it's a threat by what's going on around the bum. So I think that the reason that they clean their bums is to keep themselves looking in most evolutionary fit to ready to you know, win in another war against another cat or a dog. The kibble, so what's happening is that you're changing their gut bacteria to some degree and here we need the um, clever small, an small animal vet to tell us what's going on in their mm. gut. Why I'm out of my depth on that one. But it's true. My dad always says don't let an animal lick you on the face because it can lick its bot bot. Yes. Don't do it. Your daddy is very wise. Yeah. <laughs> Rodney. Okay. Rodney here from Benny. Rodney, Dr. Rodney. Rodney, what's your question? Hello, Dr. Lucy. Hello, Dr. Carl. Hi. Dr. Rodney, uh, welcome. I used to work in the orthotics and prosthetics field, and my boss said to me that when he's doing his technical work, he needs an extra arm. So my question is, under what circumstances would humans evolve extra limbs, and do we have or are we developing technologies that could short-circuit such processes? Yes, we are developing the technologies right now. It's called genetic in, uh, engineering. We are stuck with the model that we have and the chances are that under regular evolution that you would get an extra arm. It does happen every now and then, but it's not wired in mechanically with regard to structural integrity or with electrical wiring properly. So you do get very occasional and rare and distressing cases of kids born with an extra arm and it's just no use at all. Um, you have to do a bit of a redesign and we do that via genetic engineering and the tool is at the moment called CRISPR, invented by the two female scientists who won the Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology for this last year and there will be better tools. We need to do this so that we can live on Mars. So living on Mars, what options are there? Living inside a dome, wearing a spacesuit when you go out, it sucks after a couple of years. Um, terraforming, uh, changing the atmosphere of Mars, possible but very messy. The easiest way is to change ourselves 
so we can survive in an environment where the temperature goes from minus 100 to plus 20 and the air is less than 1% the thickness of ours. And I would personally like to have three legs at least. Two legs kind of sucks because you can fall over. <laughs> Minimum of three, preferably four. And I'd like to have eyes on the back of my head. So and an extra arm, I don't mind that either. <laughs> you got us on to one, Rodney. Let's see how it goes in the next few decades. Keep an eye on it. <laughs> we got Nick here from Barrel. Nick, what's your question? Hey guys. Uh, look, I was just wondering if you hit something with a one kilo hammer once, or oh, 10 times, sorry, is it the same if the, nothing else changes as hitting it with a 10 kilo hammer? Ah, I discovered this. So, so either you've got a heavy hammer and you give one blow or you give ten times as many blows from a hammer that weighs one-tenth as much. And the best answer is looking at the thing called the rivet, which is a, yeah. uh, fits into the category of objects in engineering called fasteners, where you fasten or join something together. In aeroplane technology, fasteners are a whole enormous field of knowledge. And so one way you can fasten, say, two bits of metal together is just drill a hole, put a screw through, uh, put a bolt, join them together, and that's it. It can come loose and it weighs more. Or what you can do is put through, drill a hole and put through a cylinder of metal. It's just a straight cylinder and it'll fall out again. And then capture one end with a bit of a domed cavity and then bash the other end where you've got a domed cavity and distort the metal, right? And I've done that in the past. And when you are actually trying to make metal change shape, you can belt it a million times. Okay, about 100 times with a one kilo hammer and you get nothing. You need the thing called the lump hammer, and that weighs about 10 times as much. And then with just one or two blows, you can do what you could not do with 100 or even 1,000 blows. And on one occasion, uh, a friend of mine, Mad Jack, we were trying to fix up a rusted Valiant engine and the piston had shoved in place. And what we had to end up going to was masking taping, with gaffer, gaffer taping, a really heavy hammer to his hand. So it was a one single unit. And then from below, he bashed it really hard and managed to get it going. He managed to get two good blows in. But his hand wasn't strong enough to hold it. So the heavy hammer is is a special thing. People think that hammers are a crude tool. Look, if you were to dump somebody who is knowledgeable naked in some part of the world, they could make anything up to a jet engine after a couple of years. And the two basic tools are a hammer and a file. And, okay, you've got to throw in fire. And a hammer is a heavy rock uh, that doesn't shatter and a file is a rock that rubs away. With a hammer and a file, you can then make a blast furnace, you can start making metals, you can make a jet engine. But the hammer is a beautiful and exquisite tool if you know how to use it. And I I know a tiny amount of it, but I've seen people who can do things with hammers. They're beautiful things. Beautiful things. Thanks, So I'm better off with a... Wait, yeah, yeah, hang on. Did you answer the question? So hang on. Yeah. Ten so times with a one kilo or a ten kilo hammer? If you're dealing with rivets and trying to make them change, make a lump of metal change shape, go for the heaviest hammer that is appropriate for the job. But there is, there is hammer artistry. I've seen, I have seen fitters and turners and even higher tool makers. Now, the tool maker is a very highly skilled person and they can do things with a hammer that make you weep with joy. <laughs> Nick, you got him All on right. one. We love it. <laughs> Last round, we got Jacob from Kilsyth. Jacob, what's your question? 
G'day, I just want to know, why do they allow trans fat to be in foods if we know that it clogs arteries? Why do we allow cigarettes in our society if the revenue we get from the cigarettes is about 5 to $10 billion a year, but the costs are $30 billion a year? Mm. <clears throat> Somebody's been able to do a bit of backroom dealing. So shortly after the Twin Towers were attacked by the planes and 3,000 people got killed in America back in 9-11, 20 years ago, they had the anniversary recently, the New York Times ran a rather inflammatory headline which was, Girl Scouts kill more than 9-11 terrorists every year. Oof. Which they do by selling Girl Scout cookies which kill, have trans fats and oh kill people. God. In the response to that, the Girl Scout people stop putting trans fats in. The beauty of trans fats, the beauty of them is that you can have them with any sort of mouthfeel you want. You can have them as hard as candle wax or just melting in your mouth or a little bit of a give or they turn into a liquid. Trans fats can give, give you any sort of mouthfeel. Notice that word that they like in food technology. Disadvantages, it'll kill you a bit sooner, a lot sooner. Yeah, okay. So that's where we have to have the politicians protecting the good of society in the long term. And you've got to consider that they are, in fact, very delicious as well. I'm not going to make that moral decision. That's too hard. Oh, no. Stephen, what's your question? Um, why does it rain? Can you answer this in 20 seconds, Dr Carl? Why does it rain? Because there's more yep. water vapour in the air than the air can control can hang on to. This is called relative humidity. Look it up in Wikipedia. And so as the moisture level goes up and this can happen, the relative humidity can change with regard to temperature, then the water droplets, the water molecules coalesce into little droplets and the droplets coalesce into bigger droplets and they, they begin to fall. There is a bit of an upcurrent in the cloud that stops them from falling down, but that can be overcome by a sufficiently heavy weight <gasps> of rain. That's it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Science with Dr. Carl. And if you've missed an episode, feel free to take a stroll through the podcast feed. Subscribe, give us a like while you're there, and we'll catch you next week.